just start this morning by asking you this question. Do you remember a time when someone told you something, communicated something to you, and you had joy welling up in your heart as a result of that news? I can think of a few times for myself personally, like the time in December of 2019 when Sarah stopped by Station 2, the fire department in Springdale, and told me that we were expecting our baby girl, Karis. Or the time that one of my greatest opponents throughout college called me years later to tell me that he had come to saving faith in Christ. Now, if the Apostle Paul were with us this morning, I suppose that he might answer this question by telling us about the time when he was in prison and received the news that the church in Philippi was growing strong in the Lord. In other words, as we read this letter, we realize that what brought Paul the greatest joy in his life were moments when he learned of his friend's faithfulness to the gospel. And he makes that point plain in our text this morning. So what does Paul's joy have to do with our own joy? Well, here's what I think we can learn from the Apostle Paul in our text this morning. Our individual faithfulness to Jesus inspires our corporate joy in Jesus. Isn't that remarkable? Don't you love that Paul doesn't say anything about the size of the church or the influence of the church or the money in the church? Those are all things that we say today when we want to highlight a church worthy of praise in our mind, but not Paul. For Paul, it was simple and yet profound. The church that brings him the greatest joy is the one that practices the greatest faithfulness. The one that is happiest in Christ. Now, I have a question for you, Living Hope. Don't you want our church to be like that? Don't you long for our church to be like that and always be like that? Don't you desire for there to be a palpable sense of joy in our church? Now, how is that possible? Well, this text tells us. Our individual faithfulness to Jesus inspires our corporate joy in Jesus. Well, now, if you would, please join me by turning your attention to what is undoubtedly the best part of this morning's message, and that is the reading of God's word. Philippians 1, verse 1. Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi with the overseers and deacons, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine for you, all making my prayer with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. 
It is right for for me to feel this way about you all because I hold you in my heart. For you are all partakers with me of grace, both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. For God is my witness, how I yearn for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. And it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment so that you may approve what is excellent and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and the praise of God. Amen and amen. Let's go to the Lord quickly and ask for his help as we study his word. Lord, we love your word, but we want to quickly admit that we need your help to understand and apply your word. So God, please fill us with your spirit. Open our eyes that we might behold wonderful things from your word. In Christ's name, amen. Our first point this morning is things you never get over. Have you ever met a person who just seems to be hung up on certain things or certain events that have happened throughout their life. You know, guys like Uncle Rico on Napoleon Dynamite. You remember the scene where he's sitting with Kip on the front steps of the house, and he says, back in 82, I used to be able to throw a a pigskin a quarter mile. And then he throws a stake and hits Napoleon in the face and knocks him off the bike. (laughs) Yeah, I'd say Uncle Rico was stuck in his high school days. But Paul was stuck on something altogether greater. He was hung up on these two words, grace and peace. But first, he identifies himself as the writer of this letter and Timothy, his beloved friend and ministry partner. Now, who were these guys? Who were Paul and Timothy? Well, Paul tells us right here, he considers himself, in the very next phrase, a slave of Christ Jesus. This missions-minded man had one master, the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, if you're carrying with you the ESV, your translation likely says servant. You're probably wondering why I said slave. Well, the word in the original actually is translated to be slave. Now, the reason for this understandable decision in translation is because in America, we're naturally revolted by the idea of slavery. However, everything changes when we understand that this is a call to be a slave to the kindest master. Though he usually said in his letters, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, he communicates his unique apostolic authority, in this letter, he identifies himself and Timothy as slaves of Christ Jesus. So what was most fundamental about the Apostle Paul? It was this fact, that he considered himself a slave of Christ Jesus. He found his greatest freedom and his greatest joy, his highest joy, by being a slave of this master, by being a slave of King Jesus. Now listen, if you chain yourself to a man 
or an institution or to an occupation, it will totally rob you of joy. But if you chain yourself to Christ and submit your entire heart to his lordship, then you will find all the joy and gladness your heart has ever longed for. So who is Paul? Well, he is an apostle carrying the authority of the risen Christ. But even more fundamentally, he is a slave of Christ Jesus. Friend, are you a slave of Christ Jesus? Do you do what he says? Are you marching to his commands revealed in his word? Or are you a slave to sin? Or are you a slave to your workplace or a slave to your career or your family? Well, Paul continues and he identifies the church, those in Philippi, those to whom he is writing. And he refers to, uh, to the church members, the Christians, as saints. Now, I think this would be really fun. If we started walking around and calling each other saints every time that we saw, we walk in on Sunday morning, we greet one another, hey, Saint Robbie, or hey, Saint Rob, or hey, Saint Grady, this would be a good time, wouldn't it? Maybe not. Maybe not. But what a profound statement, right? What a profound reality that Paul is introducing us to. Saints are not an elite classification within Christianity. It's sort of a a two-tiered Christianity. There's Christians, and then there are saints. No, saints are biblically defined all those who are in Christ. Children who are in Christ, young adults who are in Christ, adults who are in Christ... Older generations who are in Christ, all those who are in Christ are called saints. And this is remarkable when we consider this fact. We were once defined not as saints, but as sinners. But in the gospel, it changes everything. Our title changes. The very very thing that defined us has changed. We go from sinners to saints. Well, he goes on and he says to the saints in Philippi with the overseers and the deacons. So what does the structure of a Pauline church look like? Well, it is one that contains a healthy church membership, a plurality of pastors. That's what he means by this word overseers. And I love the fact that he doesn't say overseer as in one, but he says the plural form. A healthy church is one that contains a healthy membership, a plurality of pastors and deacons. And Paul, in this letter, he's addressing the entire church. His opening words are remarkable. He says, grace to you. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Now we finally come back to these two words that the Apostle Paul has hung up on, haven't we? Grace 
and peace. Friends, I want to know something. Are you hung up on these words? Or have you, or have you blown past them? Have you forgotten them? At the point of writing this letter, consider this fact. Paul has been a Christian for over three decades. But who is the man? Who does he say that he is? He doesn't just start coming up with algorithms of super spirituality. No, what does he say he is? He says, I, Paul, am a slave of Jesus Christ. You want to know who I am fundamentally? Right here. This is who I am. I'm a slave of Jesus Christ. And I am amazed by grace and peace. J.I. Packer says, this one word, grace, contains within itself the whole of New Testament theology. Paul's reminding these Christians of what is most important. Right at the outset, he's reminding these Christians of what is most important. Namely, the fact that God, who is judge, has pronounced our sentence before our meeting him on that final day. Grace and peace. So my Christian friend... We have no need to wonder what our reception will be like, for it will be like this, grace and peace. In Christ, all we know is grace and peace. Though we certainly sin and find ourselves terribly discouraged at times because of our weaknesses, because of our sin. Those no longer define us. What defines us is this phrase, grace and peace. I hope it's become plain to you. Paul never got over the gospel. Now I want to know, have you? Have you gotten over the gospel? Have you moved past being amazed by grace and peace? That God has pronounced undeserved favor on your life. And peace towards you. We once had anything but peace with God. We had hostility with God because we were sinners. We were rebels to his will. We had decided, resolved our mind that we would do things our own way and we did not have peace. But in the gospel, God has done everything required for us to be met with grace and with peace. So friends, are you still amazed by the gospel? J.I. Packer says this again. He says, we never move on from the gospel. We move on in the gospel. That leads to our second point this morning, starting and staying with Christ. Now, if there was ever a church that brought an apple to sit on the apostle's desk to earn his favor, it was this one. Paul loved this church. Now, he loved every church that he planted, but this one appears to have a special place in his heart as you read through this letter. 
He says in verse 3 that each time he thanks of this church, he thanks God because of their partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. Now, the church's origin, this church in Philippi, their origin is pretty incredible. If you remember, Paul was on his second missionary journey, which is recorded for us in the book of Acts, and he was wanting to stay in the region of Asia. If you have a Bible, most of your Bibles have a little map in the very back, and you can flip back there and find the geographical area that I'm referring to. Paul wanted to stay in this area to to sort of go and revisit the churches that they had planted, but but the Lord kept preventing this. And then one night, he has a dream. He has a vision of a man in Macedonia saying these words, come over to Macedonia and help us. So Paul and the team of missionaries set across the Mediterranean Sea, and they quickly wind up in this leading city called Philippi. On their pit stop, they sought a place to pray, and they ran into somebody named Lydia. Maybe you remember this in Acts, but the scriptures say that her heart was open to hear and receive the gospel. And once she was converted, she, she asked Paul and Timothy to stay in the town for a few days, no doubt so that she could learn more about what it means to be a follower of Jesus. Now, a few days later, you imagine this scene, Paul and Timothy are there, they're teaching Lydia and perhaps some people within her family, but they're also going out and they're trying to proclaim the gospel. And as they go out in Philippi, a woman who was possessed by a demon, I mean, this is riveting stuff, starts following Paul and Timothy day after day and annoying them. That's what the scriptures say. It says that they were annoyed. Paul was annoyed by this lady because she kept saying These men are servants of the Most High God who proclaim to you the way of salvation. Maybe she did this all day, every day. At first it was like, oh man, we got a witness to what we're doing. And then after the 600th time, it was like, okay, that's enough. We don't want to hear this anymore. So Paul turns and he rebukes this woman and the demons leave her. (laughs) This is amazing. I, I hope you're still amazed by this stuff. Like... Whoa, this really happens. Okay, all right. Well, the problem was on this occasion is that these demons were helping this woman make money for people who, who were employing her. I think employing is probably a generous word. But, but she was doing fortune telling and she was using these, these demons to sort of tap into a spirituality and do some fortune telling stuff. So when they hear about Paul liberating her from this demon, they aren't thankful. They are angry. And I think these people must have been influential people because they arranged for Paul's arrest. I mean, things are not looking good. Now, while Paul is in prison, he's not discouraged. And this is, what's, this is why we call Philippians crazy joys, because the guy just can't be knocked off of joy. While he's in prison, he starts preaching the gospel to the Philippian jailer, who was soundly converted, along with his entire family. I mean, listen, let's just take a pause. Don't you want to be that kind of Christian? That regardless of where you go, there's almost this, this, this fear of, like, if you come within this bubble, be warned, you're going to hear the gospel. 
that's Paul. He's in jail. He's preaching the gospel to the jailer. The jailer's converted. It says that his entire family's converted. And then the church was born. That's the church that we're studying right now. Now, of course, it's probably grown since the time of Acts to Philippians. But nevertheless, we have the foundations of the church at Philippi right before us. All right. Several years later... Paul uses this church as an example of generosity when writing to the Corinthians. He says in 2 Corinthians 8 that though the churches in Macedonia were extremely poor, they begged Paul to allow them to be partners in the advancement of the gospel. So I hope this all makes sense at this point now that we come to this verse 3. When Paul thinks of this church, he thanks God in all his remembrance of them. And you can see why. From the very beginning of their origin up to this point, it's been incredible. This church's faith has been tested and their genuineness has been proven. So Paul extends a comforting promise to them in verse 6 which is true of every genuine Christian forever. He says this, And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. Friends, the perseverance of our faith is inextricably tied to the unbreakable promises of God. Those storms and trials are behind us, and no doubt some are awaiting us in the future. This promise is true. He who began a good work in you will bring it to completion. So how does that land on you this morning? What was true of these Christians in the first century is no less true for us today. Beloved, if Christ has your heart, he will never let it go. This is a promise. Verse 6 is a promise that is true for every genuine born-again Christian. What a remarkable, comforting promise this is. This is true for the strongest among us as well as the weakest among us. Charles Spurgeon says this, If one dear saint of God had perished, so might all. If one of the covenant's ones be lost, so may all be. And then there is no gospel promise true, but the Bible is a lie. And there is nothing in it worth my acceptance. I will be an infidel at once when I can believe that a saint of God can ever fall finally. If God hath loved me once, then he will love me forever. Amen. Well, Paul's heart for this church is beating through the pages of Scripture. He goes on to say in verse 7 that it is right for me to feel this way about you because I hold you in my heart. Verse 8, how I yearn for you all with the affections of Christ Jesus. 
Though Paul was thankful for where they were as a church, he does not want them to stay where they are as a church. He wants them to continue to grow in grace, which leads to our third and final point this morning, growing in grace. Now, I remember saying to my friend Mickey a couple of years ago that I wished my daughter would stop growing up And I'll never forget his surprising response. I've never heard anybody else say this when someone said, I wish my daughter, I wish my son would just slow down in growing up. He said, yes, you do. You want her to grow up. And it dawned on me, yeah, he's right. As hard as it is to say goodbye to certain seasons of life, I should ultimately want her to mature and continue developing. And the same is true for the Christian life. As much as the Christian may have loved a certain season of life, they must not get stuck and resist growth. God's heart is that we would continue to grow in grace. And that is obvious through this next section. Paul prays for these Philippians that in verse 9, that their love may abound more and more with knowledge and discernment so that you may approve what is excellent and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ. Paul has has an end goal in mind as he's writing to these Christians in Philippi. He's happy that the church is healthy, but he does not want them to think that they have arrived. He does not want them to take a break. See, in Paul's mind, he knows, and he wants to remind us this morning, that a day is coming for us. And what day is that? Well, he calls it the day of Christ. It's referring to the judgment. Referring to the final day when we stand before the judgment seat of Christ and he separates us as sheep and goats. He separates those who are in the church, that is the visible church, those who come on Sundays, who adhere to to the tenets of the church, but their heart has never been transformed. They've never truly repented of their sins and come to saving faith in Christ. Paul wants to remind us that a day is coming when all of us, the church, will be gathered before him, and he's not deceived. He knows Who are his? We don't know. We just have the ability to see on the outside. We do our best to have church membership, to listen to testimonies, to carefully consider, to practice church discipline, to test, to prove. But at the end of the day, we don't know. But Christ knows. He always knows who are genuinely his. And on that last day, he will divide us, those who are genuinely his and those who are not. So Paul is saying to this church, don't stop. Don't press pause on your sanctification. Continue to grow. You've got to continue to grow. Why, Paul? Why would we continue to grow? We're we're a happy church. We're a healthy church. We don't like things changing. We kind of like staying where they are. It's kind of scary to grow because I was really happy at this certain season of Christianity. I'm getting further from that. I really don't want to continue to grow. I'm really scared of that. Well, Paul says, you have to grow because a day is coming. What day, Paul? The day of Christ. The judgment day of Christ. And this day will be the most important day 
in all of our lives. So Paul, I think this is remarkable, he goes straight from saying that that God will keep us, he will complete the work that he started, he goes straight from saying that to saying, you have a part to play. It's remarkable, right? So what is that part that we have to play? Well, it is first that our love for one another in the church grows. That your love may abound more and more. And second, that our knowledge of God's word would increase. Our knowledge of God's will would increase as we know his word and believe his word and apply his word. And secondly, that our discernment would sharpen. Our discernment would sharpen. Friends, what a remarkable work God has done at Living Hope. If you've been here for any time at all, you know he has done a remarkable work. He has continued to bless. He's continued to build. And I'm so thankful. I'm amazed at what God's doing, at what he's done. But listen, if we are to continue, if Living Hope is to continue... We must pray prayers like this. God, give us the grace as a church for our love to abound more and more. Our love has abound a lot in the past, but we have a lot of work to do. God, give us the grace for our our love to abound more and more and more and more as a church. Love for you, Lord, and love for one another and love for the lost. And God, give us the grace to grow in knowledge and discernment. Friends, as we sit under the preaching of God's word each week, this prayer is asking for God to produce the fruit of knowledge and discernment in our lives. We can't just come in autopilot and just trust that that we're going to continue to grow. We have to beg God that he would produce, by the power of the Holy Spirit, produce this kind of fruit in our lives. God, grow us, change us to be constantly changed and convicted by God's word. Now listen, friends, churches all around us are compromising at this point. While their building may still stand strong and their services continue week in and week out, God is not with them. Why? Because they have believed the lie of the day that love accepts and affirms all things. There are churches in our area surrounding us. Praise God, there are so many faithful churches who have not bowed the knee to the world. But nevertheless, there are some, many even, who have, who have believed the lie of the day that love accepts and affirms all things. But let me ask you a question. Is that what Paul says? No. He says love doesn't accept and affirm all things. Love practices discernment and only approves what is excellent. So friends, if our church stops growing in Christ, 
And by growing in Christ, I don't simply mean numerically. I mean growing in love for one another, growing in knowledge, growing in discernment. If our church stops growing in Christ, we will start blending in with the world. And we won't be ready for the day of Christ. But God has better plans for us. I am sure of this. What are his plans for this church? His plans for this church are to answer this prayer, to give us the grace to abound in love as a church more and more, and to approve what is excellent, and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and the praise of God. God loves this church. He is with this church, and he is building this church. But friends, our intensity to know him and follow him must never tire out as a church. Because we are headed somewhere. We're not living for this day, but we must be a church that is living for that day. That day that Paul is referring to when we stand before Christ. So friend, what brings you the greatest joy in your life? We've learned that from Paul, what brought him the greatest joy was his friend's perseverance in the faith. Their sustained joy in the Savior. The way our church becomes like the one in Philippi is when our individual faithfulness to Jesus begins to inspire our corporate joy in Jesus. Our individual that we have an individual responsibility to know God, to obey God, to submit to God and his will. As we do that individually, as members of this church, we'll trust that he will, he will use that to inspire a corporate joy, that collectively our church would be joyful and rejoicing in God and the gospel from now and forever. May God do that work. Let's go to the Lord in prayer as we close. Lord, we thank you for your word. And we thank you that in the gospel there is this joy. Thank you that in the gospel there is joy. And Lord, I think our church has degrees of joy. God, I, I do want to ask that you please give us the grace for our love to abound more and more, that, that our knowledge and discernment would increase. 
so that we might be pure and blameless for the day of Christ. God, that you would produce in us this kind of contagious joy that is palpable when we walk in, that there is a, a radiant type of joy that attracts lost people to come and behold what it means to be a Christian, what it means to know Christ, what it means to trust in Jesus. God, please do that for us. Please do that for us, Lord. We're entirely dependent on your grace. We trust everything to you. In Jesus' name, amen.